Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight, between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 17, A Monster of Many Parts. Have you thought of a story yet? That was the question that had been asked of her each day since the contest began, and she was still struggling to think of something. But so far, an idea for a scary story had eluded her. She had spent hours dwelling on the nature of fear. What was she afraid of? Even though she did not yet perceive it, there was something there, lurking in the shadows of her thoughts prowling the corridors of her mind. It was waiting for the right key to be put into the right lock. It was a monster, waiting to be given substance, definition. Life. It was June of the year 1816 though it did not resemble any June that they could remember. 1816 would come to be known as the year without a summer. A series of volcanic eruptions, culminating in the eruption of Mount Tambora and what was then known as the Dutch East Indies, had filled the atmosphere with ash and the sun was now only a dim, weak presence in the sky. Europe had become a cold and barren place and crops had suffered. Many people were struggling to find food. Switzerland in particular was suffering as unseasonal ice flows had dammed up rivers causing severe flooding. Along the shores of Lake Geneva, in the village of Cologne, a group of young intellectuals had gathered to socialize at the Villa Diodati, an opulent chateau that was just over a century old. Their host was Lord George Gordon Byron, a celebrated poet with an infamous reputation. He was accompanied by his personal physician, Dr. John William Polidori, a brilliant young doctor struggling to become a writer. They were joined by a not-so-well-known poet, Percy B. Shelley, his mistress Mary Godwin, and her stepsister, Claire Claremont. 
though none of them knew it. They were about to bear witness to a nativity of the darkest sort. Huddling by a fire, as the rain beat down on the villa's roof and its walls reverberated with the sound of thunder, they would see the birth of monsters. As a flash of lightning illuminated the window, the thoughts of Mary Godwin were electrified, and behind her eyes, something began to stir. In that dismal summer of 1816, Mary Godwin was only 18 years old. She was the daughter of writer William Godwin, one of the founding fathers of the anarchist movement, and his wife, feminist writer Mary Wollstonecraft. Both were considered to be political radicals. Mary Wollstonecraft was an advocate for women's rights and argued that women were not intellectually inferior to men, but merely lacked access to the same level of education. Tragically, she died 11 days after her daughter and namesake, Mary, was born. Mary's father was left to raise her and her half-sister, Fanny Imlay, who had been born to her mother out of wedlock before her marriage to William Godwin. William felt that the girls needed a mother and sought after and married his neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont, who was the mother of two children, Charles and Claire. Over time, the three girls would become especially close. William Godwin paid particular attention to Mary and had high hopes that as she grew, she would prove to have inherited her mother's intellectual capabilities. Even though she did not have much of what would be described as conventional schooling for the time, he made sure that she was educated. He wanted her to take up where her mother had left off. Godwin's political views made it difficult for him to make money through his writing, and he was perpetually in need of a patron. In 1813, he found the promise of one in the form of 20-year-old Percy B. Shelley, an aspiring poet from a wealthy noble family. Shelley became a frequent guest in the Godwin household, and it was there that he met Mary. Eventually, Percy revealed that he would not be able to pay Godwin's debts, and Godwin tried to end the relationship between Percy and Mary, one that he was never fond of to begin with. Mary was surprised by her father's rejection of Shelley. To her, he seemed the ideal suitor. However, while he was considered to be radical in many of his views, when it came to his daughter and her romantic interest in Percy Shelley, he retreated into fatherly conservatism. No matter how sympathetic Shelley's political and philosophical views were to his own, no matter how much he needed his financial support, he could not see past the young man's biggest flaw. Percy Shelley was already married. On August 28, 1811, the 19-year-old Shelley had eloped to Scotland with the 16-year-old Harriet Westbrook. They already had one child, and Harriet would soon be pregnant with another. Ignoring her father's objections, Percy and Mary ran off to France on July 28, 1814, taking her sister Claire with them. They were gone for a month and a half before they ran out of money and had to return to England. 
It was while returning home, as they traveled along the Rhine, that they were thought to have visited a castle near Darmstadt, Germany. According to local legend, this castle was once said to have been the home of an alchemist by the name of Johann Conrad Dippel. He was said to have believed that the soul resided in the body after death and to have conducted experiments on cadavers in an attempt to transfer a soul from one body to another. When the nature of his experiments were discovered, he was driven from the town. Upon their return to England, Percy did not return to his family. He also found he had no money and no prospects for getting any in the future. The couple moved from one residence to another, trying to maintain their reading and writing, while also staying one step ahead of creditors. A frequent visitor was Thomas Jefferson Hogg, a lawyer, writer, and friend of Percy from his time at Oxford. Percy encouraged Mary to have an affair with Hogg, a suggestion that was in keeping with his ideas about free love. Another complication arose when Mary became pregnant. The pregnancy proved to be difficult, and she was often ill. It was also complicated by the fact that Percy's wife, Harriet, gave birth to a son, something that was a source of great joy to Percy, and the fact that he had begun to spend a lot of time away from home with Mary's sister, Claire. On February 22, 1815, Mary gave birth to a little girl. The baby was two months premature and died on March 6. In the aftermath of her baby's death, Mary fell into a deep depression. She described seeing visions of her dead daughter. During this time, Percy stayed away from her and instead chose to carry on his affair with her stepsister, Claire. However, eventually he returned to Mary, and she soon conceived again. Her spirits were lifted at the prospect of another child. Their financial situation also improved when Percy received an inheritance upon the death of his grandfather, Sir B. Shelley. Their son, William, was born on January 24, 1816. He was named after Mary's father. In May of 1816, Percy, Mary, their son, and Claire traveled to the town of Cologne on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. They arrived on May 14th and rented a small cottage near the lake. They were there to visit Lord Byron, who arrived soon after and was staying at the Villa Diodati, a chalet located on the shores of Lake Geneva. While living in London, Claire had an affair with Byron, but he had quickly dismissed her. She had become obsessed with him and had orchestrated this gathering in an effort to once again be close to him. Interestingly, while they were there, when being introduced, Mary insisted on being called Mrs. Shelley. When the weather permitted, they would spend their days riding, talking, hiking, and boating on the lake. But the weather was particularly bad this summer, and so they spent much of their time in the villa. 
One evening, Byron read to them from a book called Phantasmagoriana. It was a French translation of German ghost stories. At one point during the night, Shelley became so frightened that Dr. Polidori had to administer him laudanum to calm him down. After exhausting the ghost stories in the book, Byron was inspired to challenge them to a contest. They would each write a ghost story that would be read aloud to the group. Byron told a story about a narrator who journeys with an elderly man to a cemetery in Turkey. The man then dies and rapidly decomposes. He later returns as a vampire to terrorize the narrator's family. Polidori attempted a story about a woman who was punished for peeping through keyholes by having her head turned into a skull. He was thoroughly ridiculed by the rest of the group. Shelley's contribution has since come to be known as Fragment of a Ghost Story, which is exactly what it was. It reads, A shovel of his ashes took from the hearth's obscurest nook, muttering mysteries as she went, Helen and Henry knew that Granny was as much afraid of ghosts as any, and so they followed hard, but Helen clung to her brother's arm, and her own spasm made her shake. He does not seem to have invested much effort in the contest, but he did encourage Mary. In the days that followed, Shelley and the others continued to ask her, Have you thought of a story? And she was disappointed to have to respond no. Seeing the reaction that Polidori had received from her husband and Byron must have been intimidating. As the days passed, her anxiety over the story increased. Then one night, they fell into a deeply philosophical conversation about life and death. It was Mary that brought up the subject of galvanism. On March 27, 1791, Luigi Galvani had published a book on his experiments using electricity to stimulate movement in the bodies of dead animals. An experiment had been performed on an executed prisoner in 1803 at Newgate Prison in London. His eyes had opened and he had raised his right hand and clenched his fist. Mary wondered whether such a force could be used not only to reanimate a dead human body, but to restore it to some semblance of life. That night she had a vision, one that was in some ways perhaps not dissimilar to those that she had suffered after the loss of her first child. She would later refer to it as a waking dream. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing that he had put together, I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. The following evening, she told her story. This was the beginning of what would ultimately become her first published book, Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. 
The story begins when Robert Walton, captain of a ship visiting the North Pole for the purpose of scientific exploration, finds and rescues a man who is nearly frozen to death. The man recovers sufficiently to tell Walton his story. His name was Victor Frankenstein, the son of a noble family. While studying at the University of Ingolstadt in Germany, he had created a method for imbuing a dead body with life. He had set out to create what he thought would be the perfect man. He stole the finest cadavers that he could find and took the best parts from them, stitching the whole together until his creation was complete. With the use of his secret process, the body was given life. It was only then that he awoke to the reality of what he had done. Where he had expected his creation to be beautiful, he now found it to be hideous. He rejected what he called the creature and ran off into the night. He later returned only to find the monster gone. After recovering from an illness, he returned home to visit his family and found that his baby brother, William, had been murdered. The nanny was blamed and later executed for the crime. But Victor saw the creature climbing a nearby mountain and concluded that it was his creation that had committed the murder. He later encountered the creature in the mountains, where it told him that since the moment of its birth, it had found only fear and hatred in the people that it had encountered and so it began to fear and hate mankind in return. It swore revenge against its creator and murdered his brother. It vowed to kill the rest of Victor's loved ones unless he created a mate, someone with whom it could share its life. Fearing for the safety of his friends and family, Victor agreed, but later changed his mind when he realized that he might be creating a new race of monsters that would hate and possibly destroy mankind. True to its word, the creature killed Victor's family and friends, culminating in the murder of his wife on the night after their wedding. Victor pursued the creature to the North Pole, intending to kill it, but he collapsed from exhaustion. It was then that he was found by Captain Walton. Shortly after finishing his story, Victor died. Walton's ship became stuck in the ice, but he managed to get free and decided to turn back. It was then he discovered the creature on board the ship. It was mourning the death of Victor Frankenstein. The monster decided that with the death of its creator, its life had no purpose and committed suicide. Since the publication of the novel in May of 1817, and especially since its adaptation into various films, many have mistakenly come to refer to the monster as Frankenstein. The fact that the creature lacks a name provokes an interesting question. Who was the monster? Like the creature, the story of Frankenstein is a story of many parts. The first part was the gothic atmosphere created by the night spent listening to German ghost stories while a storm raged outside. Added to that was the animating discussion of galvanism 
and the possibilities of its use to bring the dead back to life. Another part was the strange folklore surrounding the castle in Germany that Mary had visited as she traveled along the Rhine in 1814, a castle that bears the name Frankenstein. But the inspiration for Victor may have been much more personal. It is very likely that the inspiration for the mad scientist was her husband, Percy Shelley. They were both the sons of noble families. They both had a sister named Elizabeth. When Shelley attended college at Eton, he lived in a room filled with scientific equipment. He conducted experiments and played pranks with electricity. His classmates nicknamed him Mad Shelley. When Victor brought the creature to life, when he saw something that he had expected to be beautiful was in fact imperfect, it became grotesque in his eyes and he rejected it and fled. When Percy and Mary's first child was born two months premature and was not expected to live, Percy also rejected it and fled, choosing to carry on an affair with Claire Claremont, Mary's stepsister, rather than stay with Mary and the child. And finally, Mary invested something of herself in the creature. While the animating force that gave life to Frankenstein's monster was no doubt electrical in nature, the motivating force that gave rise to its crimes was rage. Rage at being rejected by the one person in the world that should have loved it. One can't help but wonder if deep within Mary's heart there burned an ember of a similar rage towards Percy Shelley. They had begun their relationship while he was married to another woman. He had abandoned his pregnant wife to travel with her to Europe. He had cheated on her with numerous women, not the least of which was her stepsister, Claire Claremont. And perhaps most profoundly, he had left her to grieve alone for the loss of their firstborn child. Percy Shelley was a believer in free love, but the value of romantic love of one person for another is in its singularity. Free love has no value, especially in life's worst moments. Mary Godwin, later to be Mary Shelley, was a believer in free love in word, if not in deed. But if the story of Frankenstein is any indication, she felt the sense of betrayal by her husband keenly. Prior to the summer of 1816, there was a monster lurking in the shadows of her thoughts. And in a darkened villa, as a storm raged outside, she gave it form and definition. She gave it life. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Eric Stair at Charleston Sound Studio. If you would like to support the show, please rate and review Pleasing Terrors on iTunes. Your review will make it easier for others to find us. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, 
or for information on upcoming episodes, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at pleasingterrors.com. Thank you for listening.